0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace, and as always, I'm here with Christian. Christian, how you doing?
1: I'm doing well. The The Mets look a lot different today than they did last week.
0: Yeah, um, that Escobar trade. I was in a movie when the Escobar trade happened. So the lights come up, and I look at my phone, and Escobar's gone, which, like, Escobar seems like a great guy. I loved seeing him all over the place, but also they very clearly were taking away Escobar from Buck who just could not stop playing Escobar.
1: I think there's a little bit of truth in that. I think there's also a greater truth in that Escobar just doesn't fit on this roster very well. The Mets have a lot of capable infielders and Escobar, as well as he was playing in his new role in a limited capacity as a backup infielder and occasional uh, switch hitting uh, pinch hitter. That's the value you're going to get from him, and I think the Mets looked at him and said, "This is as much trade value as we're ever going to get from an aging infielder with a large contract." And they found a taker that happened to be Billy Epler's old team, and said, "Hey, pitching prospects, sure, give them. Don't really care who it is. Just, just give them."
0: I mean the one the one guy was his name Crow. He's supposed to be very good you know and the Mets the Mets uh farm system needed pitchers desperately I'm pretty sure I would decent you know there's decent chance this guy's gonna be a top 10 prospect by the time the next list comes out for the Mets so it it's it's a really good trade for trading Escobar away of course immediately after that <laughs> Buckshell Walter starts Danny Mendick over Brett Beatty which was like what are we doing here
1: Yeah, and I I was I was willing to look at the trade and think, oh, this is just a a solid organizational move for a a team trading away uh, a a player who's not terribly useful for the team anymore. And I didn't really think about the whole like taking away Bucks toy sort of perspective until I saw that lineup come out that started both Danny Mendick and Luis Guillaume in the eighth and ninth position in the lineup, Uh, a game which they won, by the way. So maybe Buck knew something.
0: Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, like, here's the thing. At this point, right, and we'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the actual playoff chances. At this point, the Mets' chances are slipping more and more by the day. I don't see the value in playing... It, it, they won the game, but I don't see the value in playing Danny Mendick, a player who did not look super great in the minors this season thus far. Like, he looked fine, but Brett Beatty was Brett Beatty when he was in the minors. And yeah, he got a little cold after that hot start with the ma- with the major league team, but also, you know, what helps hitters adjust to major league pitching, seeing major league pitching and he can't see it if he's on the bench.
1: And this was also theoretically a really important game to win. Philadelphia is the next team. The Mets can take down in the standings and any win against the Phillies is super, super important. You would want to start the best players available and, uh, Danny mendick doesn't qualify under that. Sure, he's a nice guy. I don't know if he's a nice guy, actually. I don't <laughs> want to make that claim if I don't know him very well. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a curious start that screams more ego than it does uh, politicking.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, we can get into the, the playoffs stuff now. I don't know about you. I'm not fully out on the Mets beat making the playoffs, but I'm not feeling good about it.
1: I... I don't blame you for feeling that way, and I wouldn't blame anyone for going all the way out on the Mets right now, but here is the case that I'd like to make in in optimism in in the hopes that the Mets would make the playoffs because I had the the great fortune of working nine to five this week west coast hours which means I missed just about every Mets game this week so I had the good fortune of not watching them play I only saw the final scores and I saw that oh they outscored Houston 21 to 15 in a three-game series lost two of those three games but there's reason to believe that if you can outscore the defending champions by six runs in a three- Three game series that you can hang with anyone. There's also reasons to be optimistic that Max Scherzer is back to his form, that Justin Verlander is still 70 to 80% of the pitcher he was last year, and that's a great top two in the rotation. Francisco Lindor is finding his stride. Pete Alonso is back healthy. And I just saw the San Francisco Giants and the Cincinnati Reds each rip off 10 plus game winning streaks. I don't think either of those two teams is better than the Mets. And so why can't the Mets be the next team to rip off a 10 game winning streak? And if the Mets do rip off that 10 game winning streak with the Phillies and Marlins potentially playing 500 baseball in the interim, that's five games that they can chomp away. And all of a sudden, the Mets are not in a wild card position because I think they're eight games back of a wild card position by the time of this recording, but they're certainly in the thick of it. And there's one great team in the National League, and everyone else is just kind of all right.
0: Yeah, it's, I'm not, I'm not fully out. I want to make that clear. I do think there's still a decent shot. They make it to the playoffs. I'm still, I'll still watch every game that I, I can, you know. Um. But it's just, it's one of those things. It feels like we're reaching the critical moment, right? Like the next two or three weeks are probably going to be the point of no return. If they can't rip off, even up. If they can't win a couple of these series, because that's still the issue, they have not won a series on the road, and we'll see what happens tonight in philadelphia today in Philadelphia. Um, They haven't won a series on the road since April. That's bad, and yeah, everyone looks like they're turning it around, but at the same time, they they outscored Houston twenty one to fifteen. Houston, who haven't been as good this year as they've been in years past. They still lost two of those games. It's not the number of runs you put up; it's the number of games you win. And if you're still going to, you you can score a hundred runs and still lose two out of three of those games. If you score ninety nine in one game, it's yeah. just it, it's. We're reaching the point now where I'm genuinely scared, is what I would say. I'm not. I'm not like, oh, that's it. Season's over. I'm like terrified because I think. By middle July, we're gonna realize either, okay, yeah, they can do this, or mm-mm, mm-mm, abort.
1: Yeah, but the season's not half over yet. Like it's it's uh it's hard for me to to say that, you know knowing the way this team is played and knowing that like the NL least is no longer the the dogfight that it was a month ago it's now looking like a proper division with one great team one pretty good team and then two other teams fighting for relevancy like it's a tough road ahead and it is exponentially tougher than it was even a couple months ago because of how much the teams are now separating in the national league but we're not even eighty-one games into the season, and I, I think that's the one thing you have optimism for. You're right. If that ten-game winning streak happens in late September and not in early to mid-July, then yeah, the Mets are probably cooked. But it hasn't happened yet. I, I'm I'm not at the logical point yet, but I would also completely understand anyone who has watched this team at all over the past month feeling so despondent because they have the visual evidence of a team that just isn't getting it done. They play up to their competition. And even in that Houston series, for example, they played really well all three games. They just happened to give up a lot of runs to a really good team that's also underperforming. And so I I will happily give space to people who want to give up on this team in a way that I wouldn't have a couple weeks ago, because yeah, things look pretty bad right now. Uh, but they're not even close to being mathematically eliminated. And I don't know for a franchise whose motto is you gotta believe I, I don't really have much of a choice at this point, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, just sitting here thinking about it, it feels to me that right now it feels like the dream. Well, not the dream scenario, but right now, what would be probably a best-case scenario would be the 2019 Mets, who mm. were kind of doing the same thing. And then July, they just turned it on. They won, I think, 14 of 15 at one point. And then they traded for Strowman at the deadline, and they looked like they were actually going to compete. They ended up not making it, but I think it was by, what, three games? Which I have... I, I would have to go back and look at the actual standings at the time. I have to imagine that if there were three wildcard teams at the spot, they would have been very close, if not in that third wildcard spot. So that would be, that would be fine. And I would love to have, to to see that happen. And I think that that year being seared into my mind, because I think that's one of the most fun years in my mind of being a Met fan. Um, makes me still believe that something like that is possible but also like we're coming up on the point that the 2019 mets turned it on uh like you said 10 game winning streak in september is fun but also doesn't mean anything if it doesn't get you anywhere you have to have the time to build the momentum
1: the 2019 mets finished 86 and 76 and three games behind the Milwaukee Brewers, who ended up getting that second wild card spot that year. And the other thing about the 2019 Mets was uh, that was a really fun team. That was a team that was exciting to watch, that had uh, low expectations coming into the season, really turned it on, really went for it with a midseason trade that ended up working out. Strowman pitched very well for the Mets in 2019 and beyond. Um, but uh, I, I think that might be the best that you can hope for out of this team. Not necessarily that this team looks like, a World Series competitor, um, despite the fact that they absolutely still have the roster to make that happen, um, but that they can be fun. And uh, nothing begets fun quite like winning. <laughs> and uh, they, they need to start doing that a little more, because otherwise this is uh, going to be a long summer.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully Quintana's back soon. I, I feel like that's going to be a real moment. You know, not to, not to sound like every Mets manager since... 2010 and say Jose Quintana is a big trade deadline acquisition if you really think about it but Jose Quintana is a really big trade deadline acquisition if you think about it if he can come in and sort of stabilize that staff because the the rockiest part of that is the the churning AAA pitcher slash the Carrasco spot if Quintana can sort of lock down that spot that's been held by the churning AAA pitcher whether it's Peterson, McGill, Lucchese Jose Buto, anyone else. And then Carrasco's the only one that you sort of have to worry about sometimes. I think that'll change a lot for this team. Because a lot of the times the issue is the the pitching. Like you said, the Houston series. McGill pitched in that game and he he didn't look great. Because the, the, the thing is, is he pitches for the two innings and you go, oh wow, he's doing all right, and then he just falls apart. Um if that can happen. And that sort of stabilizes things. And if the bullpen can sort of level out, they've they've gotten rid of Hunter and Ngosik, and they've called up some of the younger pitchers who have shown some signs of being good while also showing some signs of um, inconsistency, but also they're pitching in the major leagues for the first time. You can't expect them to be perfect right out of the gate unless they're a top prospect, and none of these guys are. Um, Hopefully that can stabilize things. And if the pitching stabilizes there's a very real chance this team does go on a tear. And then that, we can start talking about the trade deadline and, and the wild card spots and everything like that. But I think that that's the biggest, I think Quintana and then the bullpen, I think that's the biggest thing we, I feel like we've been saying this for weeks though.
1: That black hole spot in the starting rotation that you talk about being filled by Quintana. Yeah, that that's the thing that turns a two game winning streak into a seven game winning streak, right? Because let's say that the offense figures it out, and all of the Mets starters figure out a way to go six, if, if you find a way to win a series, and then that third game comes around, and it's David Peterson pitching, or it's Tyler McGill pitching, it's Jose Buda or whoever you have up instead of a legitimate major league starter. The motivation just deflates and that two game winning streak all of a sudden turns into a nice series win but it's two steps forward one step back and the Mets don't have the ability to take one step back. They can't afford to take one step back. They've taken too many steps back <laughs> at this point in the season. And that's what they need because as has been shown by the record, the Mets are really really good when their pitchers go 6 plus and it's because their pitchers are really good until you dig into that bullpen. And so if they can find a way to plug in that black hole spot with a good cookie with Quintana with who knows maybe David Peterson figured it out in Syracuse then it's it's going to give the Mets the ability to turn those two game winning streaks into eight nine ten game winning streaks that we've seen from Cincinnati and San Francisco that have vaulted both of those two teams into very secure playoff positions now that won't happen for the Mets. There, There's no way that the Mets can secure themselves into a playoff position until mid to late September at this point because they've just dug themselves so far into this hole, into what's looking like a pretty good division at the moment. It's not impossible, though. All-Star break's not here yet. Halfway point's not here yet. You never know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I can't agree more. That it, it really it does come down to that – that triple a starter spot. If it can, if it can get solved, you know, and it, it, it might not be, Oh, this and that I turn into who who we get out of the bullpen turns into, we trade for a reliever at the deadline. It's not impossible the, the the fact that the Mets have been very clear on not wanting to trade top prospects probably makes it so that the only people you can expect the Mets to trade for at the deadline are halfway decent relievers. Um, it, it, that could be the, the make or break of it all really. Um, we're, we're, we're right up at our arbitrary time limit. And instead of going wildly over, like we usually do, why don't we take a break and then we'll be back.
1: So grace, the holiest of months is coming (laughs) to a close by the time this airs. I believe there will be a couple days left in pride month. Uh, most of the celebrations will have come and gone. And I guess I'd like to ask, how are you feeling about uh, this edition of Pride Month, both within the context of Major League Baseball and outside? Um,
0: You know, it feels like there's been a lot of ups ups and downs. There's been a lot of terrible stuff. I feel like right at the start of the month, and then lately we've been getting some and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but some larger societal wins that feel like, hell yeah, that could that has to happen in June. Wins like that have to happen in June. And not every MLB team's got it gotten it right. Some have, we've discussed the, the Mets Pride night. And also, while the larger teams might not be willing to do suffer say stuff. Individual players can. And I think that that's that's also important. This does come down to a, while you'd like to see larger groups, organizations get it right 100% of the time, as individuals, we have the, the ability to get it right for ourselves.
1: I think that is the overwhelming message that I have also received from this Pride Month. I've seen a lot of teams... And a lot of people within the front offices of Major League Baseball try to do the right thing, try to say the right thing, try to tiptoe the line between societal acceptance and their their financial statements that have an effective pride celebration within their stadiums. But it's so hard to do that if you don't have player buy-in. The players are the most important ingredient in this matter because they are the public facing entities of major league baseball you can have a a great plan that major league baseball puts out you can have an excellent party thrown like like the mets did for example on their pride night but it goes to waste if the players themselves aren't buying in and we've had a lot of examples of players who have very vehemently not, uh, bought into, to to pride month, but we've also gotten some examples of players that we did not expect or have not voiced their support before that have bought into pride month. And I think it's worth it to, to highlight, uh, those players, um, in, in this segment.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, the big one I saw this week was Chris Taylor of the, the the, very notably of the Dodgers, um, hosting was it was like a little um it was a little pride event that he he hosted I believe was it with his charity he might have his own charity and and that was what he did it in conjunction with
1: uh n- not sure um i I think that's that's entirely possible I don't think it matters either way wh- whether it's with his charity or with uh with someone else the fact that he happily put himself in a photo op very clearly supporting lgbt youth with colors in the back and a very nice uh caption on instagram is commendable and in larger society that's the bare minimum if you see like your friend post that on instagram cool, nice, good job you but like, you know, I I don't think that's something that deserves applause, maybe a heart, but I don't, I don't know how much that deserves. But considering that Chris Taylor represents an organization that fell so hard on its face during Pride Month, like the symbolism matters. And Chris Taylor, is a beloved player in los angeles he is a super utility player that has been there for a very long time he has contributed a lot of wonderful memories to that team he's a world series champion his voice matters this isn't a back end of the bullpen guy with nothing to lose putting his either bigotry or support out there like no this is a key member of the dodgers roster essentially going against company code and and saying he supports LGBTQ youth. And that's really cool as benign a statement as that would be for a regular person. We have to put this in the context of major league baseball, which is not the real world as we've found out.
0: I mean, and it's not just him going against company code. He, He plays on a team with guys who have put out public statements. You know, he plays on a team with Blake Trinan and he plays on a team with Clayton Kershaw and like you said, Chris Taylor is a beloved member of that team. It, it, it goes a long way. If you have Clinton Kershaw, another beloved member of the team, obviously very different levels of, of belovedness um, in terms of what they've done as in accolades, but to have someone like Chris Taylor sort of step up and say, yeah, you know, I I support this for a te- not just the team doing badly, but a team with specific players who have spoken out, uh, which we will get to another person like that in a few moments. But to have someone sort of physically put themselves out there and go, no, 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 I'm for this is... Helpful, even though, like you said, if it's a friend of mine saying that, I'm like, yeah, whoop de doo I would hope so. You're my friend. <laughs> and if you didn't, I would bully you um, in a somewhat friendly manner. But to to put yourself out there as someone who, I mean, he signed a big deal, too. Like, not a mm-hmm. huge deal, but he signed a big free agent deal with them. He's making a quite, a, quite a handsome amount of money. To put yourself on the line like that is really saying something.
1: He's been just okay in the past couple of seasons, but like, what are the Dodgers going to do? Are you going to alienate your, your left fielder and backup first baseman and backup second baseman (laughs) and best pinch hitter and most clutch playoff performer? Like, no, this is, this is a Dodgers team that doesn't have the ability to alienate any of its players because they are just barely in the playoff hunt right now. They need everyone they possibly can. So, uh, yeah, Chris Taylor, you want to say some things? I'm, I'm even sure the Dodgers welcome that sort of, of involvement from Chris Taylor, because I don't think the Dodgers, uh, have done anything maliciously of their intent. I think they were sort of pressured into saying some things that they probably should have taken more time to think about, but I I'm sure they welcome a a player with Uh, a stature of of chris taylor to to come out and say these nice things and he's not the only one that's like gone out on a limb i want to give a shout out to julio rodriguez at the beginning of the month kicking off pride month really nicely with some photo ops of some rainbow t-shirts that he wore uh during batting practice and it's it's really cool to see a player like julio do that not just because he's one of the game's brightest stars, but because he's one of the few Dominican players that has put his name on LGBTQ rights. And yeah, it's maybe it's a Gen Z thing, maybe it's a Seattle thing, but it's not a small thing that a player of Julio's stature comes out and does this at the beginning of the month to to kick it off right for Seattle.
0: Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it might be it might be a, a Gen Z thing. It might be a Seattle thing. But at the same time, like there's a it's got to be a ton of Mariners fans just like there is for pretty much any fan base who might not agree with that sentiment. And he is going out there on a limb after his, in his second full season in the major leagues and putting his face to this this community and this uh cause. And that's that's something that's really important. I mean, his um his stature in the game is something different than Chris Taylor, but he's a he's a superstar. If not right now, very soon will be. I mean, everyone knows his name at this point. He's going to be in the home run derby again. I think it's fair to say he's a superstar, and he's coming out on a limb in a way that not really any other superstar has. It, it, it's it's impressive. To and I mean, yeah, could he have said more? Could he have done more? Sure, but at the same time, who else did more really? Other than you know, Chris Taylor took the did the, the 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 little the um. The event and and we're going to talk about Kevin Gossman. He was participating in Pride Night. You've got all these other players participating in Pride Night. But like, really Rodriguez didn't really do that much less than anyone else in this scenario.
1: He's also a lot closer to MLB's top Catholic player than Trevor Williams is. <laughs> I think that's worth noting.
0: I mean, but that guy on the internet told me that Trevor Williams was MLB's top Catholic player. I have to assume he did his research, just like he probably researches everything else.
1: Ah, my bad. Oh, well. uh, yeah. You, you mentioned Kevin Gossman. Kevin Gossman. Um, I wouldn't declare what he said as like righteous rage, but it very clearly came after the the Anthony Bass scenario in, in Toronto played out. Uh, Kevin Gossman put his name on. I am religious. I am a God fearing man. And this is dumb. Let's stop doing these <laughs> dumb things. That's cool because it it gives a religious perspective on this that I don't think is particularly needed, but I also don't think is unhelpful. You can be both things. You can be a God-fearing baseball player who still accepts LGBT people in the ballpark because that's what the teachings say. That's what uh, he has grown up to believe is the right thing to do. And surprise, surprise, it kind of is the right thing to do. So yeah, Kevin Gossman, you kind of stated the obvious, I think. But as you said, who else is doing that?
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's not it's not particularly needed in that way. But it's this is a league of mostly Christian players, I would say, uh, looking at just the, the demographic breakdown. And the only people... Who have spoken about this with regards to their faith are the people who are using their faith to justify bigotry so when you have someone come out and use their faith as a way to justify not being a bigot that's kind of important when every other voice in the league is telling you well the reason why i do this is because of god and when someone else comes out and says actually you're an idiot because god wouldn't want that that's important
1: there there is a such a huge lack and a huge need for allies within major league baseball because queer people within major league baseball very clearly do not feel empowered enough to speak for themselves and this is where diversity is key you don't just need queer players to speak about queer issues you need non-queer players to speak about queer issues as well because that's what normalizes these issues. That's what allows for these ideas to be spread without any sort of opposition. And that's what allows queer fans to be comfortable coming into the ballpark and giving uh, these teams their money, which is ultimately what these teams want. And so I want to absolutely reiterate that this isn't the responsibility of major league baseball as an executive organization or of these teams to just simply put out a nice plan and speak with queer people within the community about like what they can do better a lot of responsibility falls on the players as well to have an open mind to speak out against injustice and i don't necessarily blame players who may not have grown up around queer issues to be apathetic or to simply not think about these things. But the least I can ask of you is if if you have some opinions that it, it might be a bit uncouth, maybe you should find a second opinion. Maybe you should talk to some people before, you know, saying it out in public.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it it's... It's one of those things, we've talked about this before, this league and other male sports leagues fall very far behind in a way that the the women's sports leagues don't, and that's because the partially the women's sports leagues are, have more queer players in them, which part of me wonders if that also helps to contribute to someone like Julio Rodriguez's um, it, sort of putting his face on this because he's dating a member a player for the uh, OL rain the Seattle women's soccer team. And yeah you, ha- you know I can't imagine he hasn't like hung out with her friends who are probably also on the team with her and when you look at the makeup of that team knowing knowing the league like I do I mean they've Megan Rapino on that team. That team is not a straight team. Um so it's the exposure that that I think helps lead to acceptance and understanding when a league like Major League Baseball doesn't have that exposure because they don't have those players willing to speak up for themselves because of the bigotry expressed by some of these players it becomes sort of a self eating snake they're never going to want to come out because these players aren't are going to be you know awful to them and then these players are going to continue being awful because they don't know that these people are queer that they're playing with every day and I mean, it's not. This doesn't solve all problems. Exposure does not solve all problems, and it's not going to make everyone who's a homophobe not be a homophobe. But it does change some people's opinions when they know someone intimately, closely, and then all of a sudden they realize, oh wow, this thing that I thought was was, you know, in uh, unnatural and and immoral. Well, this guy who's my best friend is is gay, and and I don't think he's there's anything wrong with him. Maybe now this changes my perspective. But it's never going to happen if these guys te- keep saying stupid shit out here.
1: I want to continue the positivity. I, I don't. I don't want to dwell on many negative things anymore. We have such little pride left. I think we should <laughs> celebrate the the victories that we have, as mild as they are, because these judicial victories that we've been getting have been mild. I want to state that very clearly because it seems as if we are clawing back some of the rights that we had in 2019, but it's a much, much needed time during this month that queer people can reflect and celebrate on the, the good news and great joy of a Tennessee drag ban being declared unconstitutional by a federal judge uh, at the beginning of the month, um, Arkansas's first in the nation banned on gender affirming care being declared unconstitutional, and a couple of bands in Florida getting struck down, both their gender affirming care through Medicaid and their drag ban being struck down all of this stuff was available to us in 2019 and 2020. And so like, it's not as if we're gaining rights. We're just kind of <laughs> regaining the stuff that we had before. But considering how the year started with like legislative loss after legislative loss, it, it didn't feel like, you know, losing a game. It felt like a stripping of rights. And Jesus Christ, was this needed?
0: Yeah, every every single time I saw one of these stories past my my timeline, I was like, yes. Like it was just like a... Joyful, but at the same time being like, yes, we got back a thing we should have, we had before and we should have never had taken away from us. Um The other issue here, for me at least, is um, all all eyes were on these laws when they were getting passed. Every single person is talking about it. And now that these things are getting struck down, I'm not really seeing anyone talking about how they're going away. Like... What, 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 why aren't we, why, why aren't we bringing the same energy to, uh, and not, not we in, in the community, we as like a media society um, bringing the same, we have 24 hour news cycles. We have, we got to fill them with something. We're filling them with stupid shit right now. Let's actually report some fucking news.
1: It's almost as if the legislation was never about the legislation itself, right? It, it was never about right-wing people in these red states actually caring about trans kids, actually caring about uh women's sports, actually caring about drag brunches in Nashville. It, it it was all about needing a win to feel good. And if that win gets taken away later on, hey, you you had the memory to celebrate anyway. Like I, I, I don't think that these are being underreported because they're 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 just like mild steps in a longer fight. I I think they're being underreported because like the people who brought up so much righteous anger in trying to get these things passed legitimately did not care about the content. They just wanted to punch trans people. They just wanted, to punch women's sports, they just wanted to punch down at whatever target they could find because that's what makes them feel good. And yeah, that shit sucks, but it also makes it pretty easy to to overturn because all of these federal judges many of them were trump appointed by the way kind of looked at all of this and said yeah we got we got this thing called the first amendment and dress is protected speech and we can't tell people how to dress so sorry like it doesn't really matter like uh what you think about drag performances or what you think about how it affects the children it's simply unconstitutional and, and we can't have this be so i I think it's something that's worth celebrating and also worth examining as as a path forward to see uh, when these these bills are passed and this this righteous right wing religious fury that it's it's never about the people it's it's all about the punching
0: and it's so the 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 drag bands spe- like like that thinking about that specifically it's so funny to me that we did all this, when somebody please think of the children when these are also the same people who cry parental rights when a teacher wants to tell a kid, like, hey, gay people exist, you know, which, like, they know anyway. There's There's plenty of gay couples around now who have kids, whether adopted or however. There's gay parents now. I mean, there were gay parents when I was a kid. There was, I remember distinctly, in my neighborhood, there was a gay couple raising two kids and my parents were just like, oh, they're married. And i was like oh okay cool like that's all it really takes for kids to understand you don't have to go and be like and then this is how they have sex no one was telling me that as a kid but for some reason these people get it warped in their mind with that but the second a parent says hey they're doing this drag story time in the library maybe i'll bring my kid it'll be a fun time whoa 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 whoa. you don't get to make the decisions for your kids but also i get to make decisions for my kids and you can't make decisions for my kids i get to make decisions for your kids it's bizarre. And we keep, and I said this last week too, this is the people who scream about small government who immediately want big government as soon as they find themselves being made uncomfortable by something.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's small government <laughs> until it's something you don't want. It's uh, it's no one ever said that these people were consistent. Some people say, <laughs> but they're wrong. Um, uh, I, I think it's, it's, well, the, the, the last thing I'd like to point out is that as positive as these um as these decisions have been it is worth pointing out that these decisions could also be easily taken to the supreme court and we don't necessarily know what happens beyond that and i only say that because it's important to keep vigilant about what happens maybe arkansas first in the nation ban on gender affirming care makes its way to dc and after that it's entirely possible that no state can ban gender affirming care or every state can ban gender affirming care. Um, I, I certainly hope it doesn't come to that. The Supreme Court could decide not to take a look at this and respect the decision of these federally appointed judges. Um, but the fight isn't over. And, and and that's the the last thing I want to say about this, because I don't want to put a sour mood on what should be a very positive end to the holiest of months um but uh i just needed to to point that out for for the sake of consistency
0: yeah i i was thinking the same thing it's there's always a chance that this does go farther i mean look we're we're a year out from roe v wade being uh appealed anything can happen you know and roe v wade had been set in stone since 1972 oh no one's ever overturning that and then it happens so it, you know these wins are great and we can celebrate them right now but at the same time if roe v wade can get overturned this shit can get overturned
1: indeed indeed what else can get overturned is the end of this segment so we're going to come <laughs> back in in act three with some lighter fare
0: okay and we're back um christian i i understand christine we're getting another questions from christine segment
1: I got a text at 1am, maybe a few days ago. Uh, th- the contents of the text was a short form video from YouTube from YouTuber Vegas Starfish. who is was apparently a very well-renowned Vegas historian talking about the scheduled demolition of the Tropicana Hotel. And she goes over why the Tropicana Hotel has such a bad reputation nowadays. It smells like cigarettes. The upholstery hasn't been changed in many decades, apparently. No one goes to it. And because no one goes to it, room rates are very, very high. It basically only exists as a nostalgia piece on the Strip. And then she mentioned very, very briefly at the end that it's going to be demolished for, quote, unquote, our new MLB team. And that's when Christine followed up her text message with what's Vegas MLB team gonna be? And uh, that's a great question. Because (laughs) I think there, there is a short answer that provides a framework. And there's a long answer that is a lot more complicated. So Grace, you've declared the Oakland Athletics, your American League team, Can, can you give us an update on on what's going on with their prospective move to Las Vegas?
0: So, I mean, we saw the Rob Manfred press conference. I don't want to, purpo- first I want to say I don't purport to be an expert on this. I've the, the news makes me very sad about the A's, so every time I read it, I'm depressed. Um, but we saw the Rob Manfred press conference, we saw the, um, I just want to shout out the A's fans who did their little takeover of, of the Coliseum, and that was so <laughs> awesome. I loved that so much. Um, but presumably the everything seems to be sort of moving along as it should be to get this team there what team is it go, what teams it gonna be who knows it you know we con- conceivably purportedly it's going to be the A's um several players have come out and said not from the A's but from players across the league have said we don't think they should be the A's anymore which I think is interesting um and I agree but we just, um, who knows? Who knows? It's John Fisher. Anything goes. Um, They're going to play in a ballpark shaped like Saturn, and they're going <laughs> to play in 115 degree weather. It, nothing makes sense. Everything's terrible.
1: On a seven acre plot of land that's <laughs> away from where all the activity happens in the strip, by the way. It's, uh, it's so weird because, um, first of all, like Las Vegas kind of makes sense as an MLB destination just because it's turned into a big league sports city with the Vegas Golden Knights succeeding beyond anyone's expectations there. And the Raiders, you know, being there as well. It doesn't matter what NFL team is there. If an NFL team is there, you're kind of a, a big league city regardless. So like, I understand the desire for major league baseball to put a team there, but I would understand it better as an expansion team, because it doesn't make much sense for major league baseball to accept the reality of a team moving away from the Bay area, one of the five largest markets in the country to Southern Nevada, who I don't even think has a million people in that market. Like, it doesn't make sense from a television revenue standpoint. It doesn't really make sense from a sustainability standpoint because who knows if Las Vegas is gonna be here in 30, 40, 50 years. And you would think that like a city so flush with cash like Las Vegas, who's willing to give $380 million to a team like the A's to move there, would be able to pony up an expansion fee like MLB isn't going to get an expansion fee from the A's moving to Las Vegas and so you got to find another sucker of the city to pay the you know three four five hundred million dollars to expand a 31st or a second 32nd team there and I don't know who that's going to be if it's not Las Vegas there's there's just so many hurdles that the A's have to go through and yeah they're probably gonna make it because they've already declared their intent to move to las vegas and get the hell out of the east bay but i I mean if major league baseball hasn't put their seal of approval on it quite yet and the owners seem a little bit quiet about this and there isn't really like a solid plan of like what's going to happen once the lease in oakland runs out next season then i don't think it's 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 smart to say that this is a hundred percent going to be the A's are going to play in in uh in Las Vegas by 2027 or or whatever year they've decided is is their target
0: I mean whoever said that the MLB was smart the MLB I sound like an idiot um but it's 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 stupid it's entirely stupid nothing here is like they have the the plot of land which is way smaller than what they like it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, this is way smaller than what they would have gotten in, in Oakland if they just worked with the city. Um, the city keeps getting money for this Howard Terminal project that now is not going to include the A's. Um, and I think that the total amount of money they have for that now is more than what the the Fisher got for moving to Vegas in that land deal. Um, it, it's It's stupid. Um and like you said there's really been nothing we've heard from the owners on this which is a little weird um you know obviously I don't I'm trying to think the last time that the league expanded or a team last time a team moved was the Expos to Washington I was 7 um so I really don't remember what the process was and wasn't really tuned into like the political maneuverings at the time but um it, it feels weird with everything we know about the league now That uh, nothing would come out from, and we know at least one person who's going to be in the committee. We know, I believe it's the Brewers owner, I believe, is going to be part of the committee discussing whether or not to approve this. Um, But it feels weird we've gotten no other information, whether it be the other two, I believe it's three or four people on the board. So the other people's names in that committee or any sort of opinions from the, the, the league itself other than Rob Manfred being a smarmy asshole. And the players being like Bryce Harper coming out and being like, hey, I hate it. Um, So it's – this is all very weird and like a little too quiet. It feels like it's going to happen, but at the same – if this thing fell apart at any moment, I would not be surprised because it feels like it's being done really roughshod.
1: And the clock's ticking too. Like (laughs) it's it's hard to build a stadium in four years, especially when there's a hotel that is sitting on the spot that you're going to build your stadium on without an environmental review, without the guaranteed money, like it, it's, it's not just a rough shot plan. It is a rushed rough shot plan. And, uh, that's how Vegas was built. So I guess it fits for the city, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, not looking great. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think I would put my money on the A's moving to Vegas, um, instead of staying in, in Oakland. But yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be really sad, but, uh, let's, let's stop being sad. Cause I don't want to be sad anymore. Grace, you got a movie for us?
0: I sure do. Uh, last week of Pride Month. So I was looking. The, one of these movies I actually wanted to recommend last week. Uh, but I wanted to find the, the right movie to pair it with. And I wasn't able to. And then this week I watched something for the first time. And I cried so much at the end. And I went, perfect, perfect duo. Well. So the movies I'm going to recommend this week. One is called, I want to get both of their names right. So one's a documentary, an English language documentary from America. And the other one is a French film so the documentary is called um common threads stories from the quilt which is a documentary from 1989 um made by actually the two guys who did the celluloid closet big fan of their work um and it's about the aids quilt that they put together in the late 80s to sort of both commemorate and as an activist sort of look at how many people are dead thing um and you're doing nothing very moving documentary. It sort of goes through, it's five different stories. So it's, um, three gay men, a black man who was a former intravenous drug user and a 11 year old kid with hemophilia. When the documentary is made, all of the people being covered are dead, but their, their loved ones are, you know, sort of talking about both who they were as people and what they went through. Um, and it's very powerful. Um, it, it, it's an hour. It's very short. It's an hour and 19 minutes. And it is a gut punch of a film. Because it's, it's... One of the most heartbreaking things is that one of the stories is being told by... Like, it's about a gay man. It's being told by his lover, who also has AIDS. And you're basically looking at him as he's dying. Telling the story of the man he loved who died. Um, which is emotional in and of itself. And then there's, what I loved about it is that it has somehow aged so well, because at the time it was a movie about a living document that in and of itself was a living document, basically as both a documentation of the quilt and also as a piece of activist art, basically saying like, we're dying. There's there, there, they say at the end, there will be an end to this one day, but there's no end right now people are still dying. And now we are 40 plus years out from the first AIDS case. People are still obviously getting HIV and and, and AIDS and everything, but it's at a much low, lower level. There's more medication. There's more ways to sort of protect yourself. So it has morphed into sort of this document that's basically a snapshot of time while also being a reminder That these aren't just numbers because when you look at something from the past you tend to any sort of epidemic or anything like that you look at the numbers you go oh my god so many people died but this sort of puts a face and a name to these numbers that reminds you that these are all individual people um and also that the government at the time did such a horrendous job at trying to curtail and trying to help these people um that it borders on if not fully tipping the scales into basically being a government sanctioned genocide of gay people. Like that's what it was because it wasn't that they weren't, they they were refusing to help, you know, hemophiliacs. It was, this is the, this is the gay plague. We don't want to do that. We don't quite believe that those people deserve to live anyway. And it's, it, it's heartbreaking. The other film I'd like to rec- recommend, I want to make sure I get the, f- the correct title for the French film. Um, it's called, so the French, title is 120 bada per minute, it's BPM is typically the American, uh, title, Beats Per Minute. I believe it's on, you can find it on like any site that you stream, uh, same thing for Stories from the Quilt. It won the Oscar for Best Documentary, so you can find it pretty much on Amazon, Voodoo, wherever you do stuff. Uh, same thing for Beats Per Minute. It's also on Canopy, which I recommend if you have a library card, you, I believe pretty much any library, you can sign up for Canopy for free. Um, which is a really wonderful service and they have all sorts of really interesting films on there. Um, but it's about Paris in the 90s and their act up activist group um, to sort of put the pressure on the government for not doing enough for AIDS. What I love about this movie, a super, super touching film. Um, again, it's the movie that'll make you sob. It has Adele Hanel in it who I, I love. She was in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She has retired from film work um, to become the coolest person alive, which is awesome. Like just this awesome, like going out and being like socialism rocks. And it's, it's, she's great. Um, but it's puts you in the moment so well as a film, it, it makes, it, it, it makes you feel what it was like to be in those groups to sort of have to do these sort of crazy protests where they're going through like a, a medical building and they're throwing fake blood on the wall and they're laying down in the streets pretending to be dead and they're protesting. I mean, it's just such, it was, so, it's such powerful imagery, which is why it has sustained itself in, in the culture and community for so long. I mean, we still, you still see the pink triangle on stuff, which descends from the Holocaust, but they turned it into their own symbol of silence equals death. Um, it, it's so moving, of a film and I think that the two really work well together because I think you need to s- the, the documentary touches on act up but it was the work of groups like act up that got us to the point that we were able to sort of pressure the government into finally acknowledging it and I mean there's a ton of there's tons of AIDS related media out there that you can watch because obviously huge story people are, are really especially the community filmmakers in the community uh, artists in the community really touched by that story because it is so recent and it's it there's a whole generation of people missing in the community really that are that are gone um but these two films i think really sum up the that moment really well and put you in that moment really well
1: it's also the seminal 20th century moment and i hesitate to say 20th century moment cuz the aids crisis continues today but it it is the seminal moment for the LGBTQ community, specifically for gay men um, in in the United States and around the world. Um, and it deserves that sort of perspective. I don't know how you feel watching these documentaries, but even when I'm watching fictionalized accounts of ACT UP protests or uh, the March on Washington or anything aids related in the united states in in the 1980s and 1990s it's very very difficult for me to sit through because it forces me to a face my own mortality in in a situation like this but it also forces me to be incredibly grateful for my own position and simply to be born when i was because there is no better time to be a queer person in the United States than right now. Maybe it was better in 2019 than it is in 2023, but like <laughs> it, it, it certainly wasn't better in 1989. It certainly wasn't better in the early 90s. And I, I, I have to experience so much gratitude. I remember when, um, when, when my partner showed me Pose, um, for for the first time last year. It it was never on my radar. Um, I'm not a black trans woman. And so like, it's not something that entered my social orbit. And I also just don't watch a lot of Western television, but it was such an affecting show for me that wanted to celebrate the joy of New York city ball culture in the eighties and nineties, but never, never pulled its punches regarding the AIDS crisis. It hits you immediately from episode one, that a lot, a lot of people that you love in this show are going to die. And there's no way around that, and and you must face it. And it's it's no surprise that the 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 rebellion against it was was so powerful and and so moving because uh, there's that famous clip of um, that that blonde man in glasses. I, I I don't know if he is named or if if we have a name for him, but he was asked, "Why are you doing this?" And he said, "We don't have a choice." There there is nothing left to lose. At this point, these, these people live in poverty, these people have no recourse, they they have no government support, they, they need to start burning shit, they need to get people's attention, because it's, it's life or death at this point. And and you're right, we, we lost so many people um, in that, in that era, so many, so many men, especially that would be able to provide a perspective and some comfort about the, all of the losses that we've been experiencing in the past couple of years, but we just don't have that guidance because all those people are dead. And it, it will never not be a tragedy. And these stories need to need to be told in perpetuity as a reminder of what happens when a government is simply apathetic, simply doesn't care about millions and millions of infected people because of bigotry.
0: Yeah. It, it watching stories and and films and, and television about that era and that that the the AIDS crisis is is it's tough it's a tough thing for me to sit through i feel a sense of deep sorrow when i watch these things just just so like in the pit of me which it, it, it's it, there's like there's two things that really do that to me. And it's, it's films of if, stories about like the AIDS crisis and stories about the Holocaust, that there's like a deep guttural sense of sorrow that I feel watching them because it is senseless and needless and the amount of hurt that we cause to each other for no reason other than a small part of who we are as people being seen as lesser or inhuman. Um, And it, it's, there's a deep sense of reverence too when I watch things, that sort of touch on both the people who, who lived that experience and lived through that time with the fear and the, the you know, sort of terror and and threat of violence at every turn that so many people, we lost so many people, but there's also the people who made it through. I mean, there's a, there's a sense of deep reverence that they were able to make it through and that they can, however few of them there are, they can be a, sort of a guiding light Um, and like you said, gratitude, there's, it's, there's a lot of terrible things right now, but there's also no better time to be alive and, and queer. I mean, there's no, there's no question, even, even with every stupid thing that's going on right now.
1: And we're still here. Yeah, we're still here. (laughs) that's, That's the ultimate joy, right? The fact that like the AIDS pandemic was so widespread and so devastating that it could have quite literally wiped us out not just because it could have taken out, you know, every gay man in existence at the time, but it also could have ostracized the queer community so far back into the closet in every single corner of the world that it's just no longer socially acceptable to be gay anywhere. And that didn't happen. Like we, we overcame that and we're still fighting. There's still stuff to fight for, but the, uh, the stakes don't, don't seem as high. And that's, that's such a huge blessing. This isn't a life or death scenario for, for me anymore. There, there, there's, there's still, you know, life, death scenario for a lot of trans people around. And that's why we need to keep fighting and keep supporting our, our trans brothers and sisters. But it's, it's, uh it's, it, it doesn't feel as dire. And I, I, I also can't say that with any sort of accuracy because I wasn't alive in the eighties to experience this. But if, if these, if this media that, that we're watching holds any sort of water, then yeah, yeah, you're right. There's no better time than right now.
0: And not to not to do a full circle, corny tie back, but and that's what Pride means to me. Like what we discussed in the first episode of Pride. This month. was
1: this was supposed to be a happy episode, Grace. We were supposed well, to be I'm celebrating. I'm happy how good
0: these movies are.
1: I'm good. Well, I'm good. I'm glad about that. All right. Uh, I think we should wrap up our our Pride celebration with that sentiment, Grace. Do you? Do you have anything else to add? Doesn't have to be about the Mets because I don't know how much I want to talk about the Mets, right? Now.
0: Uh yeah, I mean they they sure are playing today. Um but they're playing at the same time as the Liberty and right now I'm way more committed to the team that just absolutely blew the doors off the Atlanta Dream. Um I guess you know what I want to say? Pride month is ending, but much much like Christmas, pride is a feeling in your heart and mm. every month is pride month if, if you want it to be.
1: No, that's nice. Well, <laughs> hope the <laughs> Hope Mets can have a much better Pride Month uh, going forward, if, if that's indeed the <laughs> sentiment. Uh, thanks, Grace. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, have a happy rest of your month, and we'll see you in July.